This evening we turn in Holy Scripture to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Before reading our text, which is the last two verses of this chapter, I want you to notice once again the prayer of the Apostle recorded in this chapter and of which he speaks in verses 14 and following. We gather 
in prayer on prayer day. And the apostle also prayed for the church, prayed fervently for her spiritual welfare. And in doing so was praying, thy kingdom come. Back to verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And here's the content of his petition. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, And then the conclusion, which is also the conclusion of this prayer, is the great doxology that we read in the last two verses and which we take as our text, Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you consider what are really staggering petitions of the apostle on behalf of the church, we might tend to ask how can we even expect to receive such inexpressibly wonderful blessings as that which the apostle petitions God for on our behalf. And Paul himself knew that such questions would arise. After all, the gospel that he had preached in in Ephesus was the gospel that says there is nothing in us to deserve these blessings. Nothing. It's the gospel preached to those who were dead in trespasses and sins and who have been saved by grace alone through faith in Christ. It's a gospel that realizes that we continue to struggle with our old man of sin. Cannot possibly bring anything to God for which we should expect anything in return. So when he brings these petitions to God on our behalf, and when he seeks for us such indescribably magnificent blessings, how can he even dare make such an appeal? Yes, he knew that such questions would arise, and so also this doxology provides the answer, as well as emphasizes our calling to give God his due. 
How can he bring these, these amazing petitions to God and expect an affirmative answer? Because of who God is. We stand before him and even more in relationship to him who is infinitely sufficient to supply our every need and to satisfy every longing that's in harmony with his will. In fact, he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, even according to the power by which he works in us. And therefore, these requests that he has made on our behalf, and which we also join him in making, are such a glorious possibility and the fulfillment so reasonable, even certain, that the church must burst forth into this doxology of praise. Unto God be glory in the church. And so the question we face is, do we find within us the same fervent desire to glorify God? Are we moved by the same thoughts of his greatness and power, his abounding mercy and goodness, his power to fill us with his blessings? Are, are those the, our thoughts when we approach him in prayer? Or is it so with us that we think we have quite enough without seeking the answer to these petitions? Is it so that when Paul began to speak about Christ filling us with all the fullness of God, that he goes too far? That these things aren't even possible for us during this earthly sojourn? Do we feel that these things are beyond the ordinary Christian? And certainly not possible for us? What is, our petition, what, what is our position with respect to these petitions? It would be very wrong merely for us to look abstractly at this doxology and the preceding prayer without these questions. There's very pertinent instruction here for us, instruction also for us to embrace we are called to glorify God. We're called to glorify God in our prayer life and in our specific prayers. Let us consider then how that shall be done as we expound this text under the theme, the church's fervent doxology. We notice, first of all, doxology extolling God's great power. Secondly, laying hold on so great a Savior. And finally, proclaiming God's glory. Extolling God's great power, laying hold on so great a Savior, and proclaiming God's glory. 
The apostle begins this doxology by extolling God's great power that we find in verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. As he offers his prayer on behalf of the church, he would have her focus on the greatness of God's power. This isn't the first time that the apostle would point us to particular attributes of God. Back in the first chapter, he expressed his prayer for God's people, namely that they might be enlightened in their spiritual understanding to know, among other things, to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe. He went on in that context to describe that power in terms of the mighty power by which God raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand. In other words, it is resurrection power. That's the power by which God works in his people. And now after having unfolded that power once again as it's revealed in God's work of saving his people, the apostle comes back to that concept once again. He longs that we come to understand as a matter of our own experience and confidence that our God is a powerful God. Powerful God. A God who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. No matter how great our need, his resources are without limits. No matter how powerful are our enemies, his power to deliver is infinite. No matter how lofty our requests, He's able to satisfy them. That the apostle would have us understand. And notice how strained becomes the apostle's language here. He's trying to describe that, which ultimately is indescribable. That's why all he can do is pile up words. Now unto him that is able above or beyond all things. That's what he writes literally. But that's not sufficient, so he adds exceeding abundantly or, or above or beyond abundantly. In other words, he takes a superlative abundantly and says that that's not enough. That, that can't even express it. Superlative can't express it. It goes beyond, even far beyond abundantly, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so you sense the inadequacy of human language to, to express the greatness of God's power. We can, we can use superlatives as scripture does and even add superlatives to superlative and go beyond this and beyond that. We still haven't succeeded to describe it. The power of God is exceeding abundant above all things. And notice to what he's connecting this. 
He's speaking yet about that prayer that you and I may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of God which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And he says, you think I've gone too far in my prayers? Do I seek too much? Have I overstepped my bounds and gotten carried away with my thoughts so that my requests have become unreasonable? Oh no. I've been praying to him whose power is infinite and eternal, whose power is above all things, who is able to do exceeding abundantly above even our most radical thoughts. Sometimes, rather than losing heart in the efficacy of our prayers, which sometimes seem to go unanswered, and rather than settling into a state of spiritual emptiness and shallowness, we have to come to stand before God and his almighty power and pray in such a way that acknowledges that power. It's the purpose of the Spirit in this passage to encourage us and to give us confidence in our prayers to God that we might enlarge our petitions to him. Not that we approach him with carnal desires. Paul doesn't do that nor seek an easy pathway through this earthly sojourn, but that we pray in recognition of him to whom we bring our petitions. We must stop and think about certain things before we pray. And the most important matters that we must consider before we pray are these. Number one, to whom am I praying? And number two, what is the truth about him to whom I am about to address my prayer? Let's remember we come before him who alone is God. We come before a great king, a king above all kings. We come before him before whom no earthly king could even approach without first having the scepter held out to him. We come to him to whom belongs all grace and all power. Listen to what scripture says elsewhere concerning him. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Notice that God doesn't lack. He's able to make all grace abound toward you, and he's able to do that to the end that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. 
or listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, which tells us concerning our Savior, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Verse, chapter 7, verse 25 of Hebrews, he is able also to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him. Notice again the superlatives used in describing the power of God and our Christ. Still more. In Philippians 3, verse 21, we read, he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Or Jude 24 and 25, with powerful application to our own lives, another doxology this is. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. In all these texts, God reveals himself in Jesus Christ his Son as the all-powerful one who's also abundantly generous. He not only gives according to the greatness of his power, but he gives liberally to those who call upon him. He is able, talk about a list of S's, he is able to save, to succor, to subdue, to sanctify, to supply, to secure, to satisfy. And the apostle, fully aware of who God is and how he has revealed himself, therefore knows it's fully in harmony with biblical truth to say he is able to do exceeding abundantly about all that we ask or think. The great problem that we face in our own lives as Christians is our failure to acknowledge God as God. Our tendency is to limit the eternal, unlimited power of God to the measure of our own minds and our own conception of things. And the failure to acknowledge God as God is found throughout the Bible among his people. One of our great sinful weaknesses. So there's a classic example found in Genesis 18 when the holy angels appeared in the likenesses of men to the aged Abraham to repeat the promise spoken to him by God that Sarah would bear him a child, the seed of the covenant, even in her old age. And God saw to it that Sarah herself heard those angels bring that repetition of God's promise. And when she heard it, she laughed, we read. 
And we understand, don't we? She looked at the possibility of this happening from a human point of view and laughed. But in doing so, she was failing to acknowledge the power of God. And the Lord rebuked her with a challenge spoken by the one angel. So we read in Genesis 18, verse 13, And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Moses fell into the same sin of failing to acknowledge God as God when God called him to be his chosen servant to lead his people out of of Egypt. And you remember, we find it in Exodus 3 and 4, how, how Moses had excuse after excuse, focusing on his own limitations as to why God could not possibly be calling him. And after hearing excuse after excuse, God finally had an end of it. And when Moses said unto him, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, I'm slow of speech and of slow tongue. The Lord responded, who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or the deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. And the Lord also promised to do signs by Moses' hands through the rod that he would give him. Later, as the Israelites journeyed in the wilderness, and Moses became utterly disgusted with their repeated rebellion against God and their complaining, he began to question the Lord's power to accomplish the promised deliverance. In Numbers 11, we find Moses talking back to God, questioning his instruction to feed Israel with the meat they had requested. And the Lord's response to Moses was, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Do you call into question my power to accomplish what I have said? Thou shalt now see whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. God's people are repeatedly guilty of limiting his power. And his willingness to accomplish things that seem out of the question. 
So Psalm 78 verse 41 points to the great sin of Israel in the wilderness. You know what that sin was? They limited the Holy One of Israel. They remembered not his hand nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy. And the psalmist then recounts the wonders that God had performed in saving his people and fulfilling his promises. All that God had done, and yet we still question that power. And the same thing is seen in the New Testament. When Jesus explained the permanency of the marriage bond, and the one flesh relationship that marriage entails, and when over against the prevalent attitudes of that day toward marriage, which allowed for divorce and remarriage for every cause, the Lord taught clearly that the one who is put away, divorce, may not marry another. The disciples said, who can bear such hardship? And what did the Lord then say? Oh, you're right. You know, you humans, you, you can't bear that hardship. To live single the rest of your life? Can't bear the burden of living, living that way. God will just turn the other way now. Forget about the seventh commandment. No, that's not what he said. He didn't set aside that law that he had just carefully explained. Difficult as it is for men to receive. Nor did he overestimate the strength of men and women to bear the burden of such situation. Rather... He pointed to the power of God to give them a spiritual understanding, enabling them to walk in the way of faithfulness in single life. And so he said, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. God has to give that. Those to whom God gives that spiritual understanding, he also gives power to cast their burden onto him. In that same context of Matthew 19, you remember how the rich young ruler approached Jesus, saying, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And after discussing the law with that young man, Jesus commanded him to go and sell all that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man left to struggle with those matters that within his own soul, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when his disciples heard that, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? And you see what they were saying? They were limiting the power of God. They were thinking, if a man who has all the advantages of this earthly life cannot accept with great difficulty into the kingdom of heaven, how can anyone else be saved? They were taking the power of God out of the equation of salvation and looking at salvation as a matter of man's doing. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Notice again, he calls attention to the unlimited power of God, which they had limited and even overlooked. But the reason God's amazing power is called to our attention in this doxology of the apostle is exactly because we also are guilty of limiting the power of God in our petitions and requests for ourselves and for the church. And we have to be reminded of him to whom we pray. Besides those biblical examples to which I just called your attention, <clears throat> many of them directly applicable to our situation today. There are many other examples that can be pulled from our own lives and situations that demonstrate how guilty we are of limiting the power of God. Perhaps, for example, we have an unbelieving neighbor or a fellow worker that's profane in his life and conversation. And we, rather soon, make a judgment of such a person. And isn't it true that that judgment often goes something like this? Well, clearly this person's an unbeliever. Don't have to waste my time talking to him about Christ or about church. This is obviously a hopeless case. You ever thought about that? It's rather easy to do that with politicians too, isn't it? They look to be such a sorry lot, sold out to corruption, lacking integrity, wickedly rejecting the word of God, and all the rest. So we say, yes, I know God commands us to pray for them in 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 2. And he does that not only that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life for the advance of the gospel, but because he's pleased to gather his elect from all kinds of men and from all spheres of society. But politicians... They're a hopeless cause. 
feel that way? To mention another example, sometimes we look at our own lives with a deep sense of dissatisfaction and unhappiness. We're not happy, we know we're not happy, and yet at the same time we take this attitude, nothing can change. It's the way I am, I just have to live with it. Sometimes we look at the sins of a fellow church member and we say, well, he just has a problem that he can't change. But do we realize, people of God, that in in all these examples I've just mentioned, we are doing the same thing as we saw in the Old Testament and in the New? We're limiting the power of God to work change. That's what we're doing. We confess intellectually that God is all-powerful and able to do all things, but, but our hearts haven't laid hold of that truth. Yes, whether God will save a person is entirely up to his good pleasure and his sovereign decree, but for us to say or to act, as if God cannot, as if the case is hopeless, is to improperly limit the power of God. And then to think that God would call us to holiness and not enable us by his spirit to walk in holiness is to put shackles, not on us, but on God, on the Holy Spirit. What a horrible sin we commit when we do that. We like to imagine with false humility that we would like to see spiritual prosperity in our own lives and in the church as a whole, but it really isn't possible. But if we will lay hold of this text, and stand consciously before him to whom we pray, then we would confess our inexcusable unbelief and we would realize that God does not mock his people when he says, with me nothing shall be impossible. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. God's word to us is, as we read in Psalm 81, verse 10, Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. Unless we question his willingness, we are told in Philippians 4, verse 19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That is, he's willing to supply all your need. Or Psalm 84, verse 11. No good thing will he withhold from from them that walk uprightly. 
Still more, the apostle confirms this when he adds the expression, according to the power that worketh in us. Would we question this amazing truth about God that he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think? Does that seem too wonderful to us? Paul says it not only does happen, it has happened in us. That same power of God which is proclaimed in this doxology is already working in you. And I dare say when Paul wrote this, the first thing he was thinking about was his own life. Would you doubt this power of God? Look at me, he says. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, who hated Christ with a fervent intensity. Never was a man so held by prejudice and hatred and self-righteousness as I. I made myself personally responsible to wipe out as much of the church as I possibly could. No one could ever have held out hope for me to become a Christian, but now I am. How did that come about? There's only one answer, the power of God. But that very same amazing and inexpressible power has been at work in you. Have we not already seen Ephesians 2 verse 1 and 2? You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins? How have you been made different? You say you were born different? Oh no. You were born in trespasses and sin. Dead in sin. By nature you were children of wrath even as others. How then were you changed? Given a glorious place in the body of Christ, the church. There's only one answer. By the same power of God of which I've been speaking. So that... Even when we were dead in sins, God quickened us together with Christ. And not only that, but he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Without that power of God wrought by the Holy Spirit in us, we're spiritually dead. Lost and under God's wrath. He has shown us, therefore, there's no limit to his power. Is there any greater power than that which has raised us from the dead? You know that power, don't you? It's only by knowing that power, of course, that it's possible to, to join in this doxology to God our Savior. 
But when you know this power of God working in you, you must go on and confess he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. So the language of this doxology compels us to lay hold on so great a Savior. In the first place, this doxology should greatly encourage us as we look to Christ. There's something about this petition that that certainly deeply humbles us. And if you've heard this word of God spiritually, it has too, because we can't help but see our shame in such low spiritual expectations that we have and such denial of God's abundant power and love for us. But the purpose of this doxology and and the record of it in Holy Scripture is not simply to humble us and make us recognize how far short we fall in our expectations of God and our petitions of him, but its purpose is more especially to move us to raise our expectations and to deepen our confidence in our Heavenly Father. His bounty is overflowing to us. As we lay hold of this doxology and confess it from the heart, we lay hold on so great a Savior which says to us, prove me now. Bring your problems to me. Spread before me your needs and count on my bountiful supply. Don't question my power to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. Our God delights to be trusted. To be counted on for great things. And so this doxology also instructs us. It reminds us who we approach in prayer. Well, that's going to affect the contents of our prayer. Not only will we seek great things with fervent expectation, but that which we seek will be subject to the glory of his most holy name, whose bounties we seek. He's the glorious God. He has told us, Isaiah 42, verse 8, his glory he will not give to another. And for that reason, his glory is to activate us and regulate us in all our petitions. That must be our supreme and constant aim. And for that reason, we ask only those things that will promote his glory. That which we seek, therefore, we seek not merely for our sake, but for God's. His glory is above all our earthly comforts and concerns. And so we conclude our prayers, as did the apostle, proclaiming God's glory 
Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Such proclamation of God's glory must come from us who are members of his church. God created us for that purpose, to show forth his praise. By Jesus Christ, we have been formed to the glory of God. Nothing shows that power and glory of God to such a degree as does his church. The Christian church is a wonder work of God's grace. It's the very seat of his glory by Jesus Christ. So he even refers to her as Israel, my glory. Imagine that. That's how God speaks of us, his church. And all that the apostle had written to this point demonstrated that truth very clearly. The church is the glorious body of Christ. Scripture teaches us that the Son has glorified the Father and the, Father is the Son is glorified in us. And this great doxology of praise must be extended to God world without end. Notice what Paul says here. The church, you and I, will be there throughout all ages, glorifying God forever. Such is the power of God. There's no end to that glory which is revealed in Christ's body the glory of God, our Savior. Are you joining in this doxology now? As we stand before this tremendously blessed instruction given us by the Holy Spirit of Christ, let each and every one of us make as our hearty response, Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank Thee that Thou hast taught us to pray, to call upon Thee, to praise Thee, to petition Thee for the forgiveness of our sins and for our sanctification, and to seek from Thee that which we need and those things which we desire that strive to be in harmony with thy will and to thy name's glory. And Father, grant that as we approach thee in prayer, we may acknowledge who thou art and how great thou art, and that we may call upon thee in that knowledge. Continue, Father, to teach us to pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.